Did you sleep last night? Uh, not at all. Not at all. I mean, well, I slept, I think, four hours, um, three hours or something. Ana Vanessa Herrero lives in Caracas, Venezuela. She's a reporter for The New York Times. So, you know, I, I just I have three days um, waking up at 6 a.m. and sleeping at 3 a.m. in the morning. Oh, you've been doing that for the last three days. Yeah, since Monday. Yeah. All week long, Ana's been covering these protests. Thousands of people demanding that President Nicolas Maduro step down. Then on Wednesday, Ana was there when a new leader, 35-year-old Juan Guaido, declared that he was Venezuela's actual president. She watched as Guaido gave himself the oath of office on a Caracas street. I was in the middle of tens of thousands of people raising their hands. You know, saying, I swear to protect this country, to protect the Constitution. As he was thrown in, he also asked the people to do the same because the, the speech they're, they're um, on right now is, this is not only my job, this is everyone's job. Juro. Asumir formalmente las competencias del Ejecutivo Nacional. And uh, people were crying. People were singing the national anthem. They were hugging. You know, they, they expressed so much hope. I haven't seen that for a long time in Venezuela. It was really overwhelming. So who's running Venezuela? Is it Nicolas Maduro or the new guy, Juan Guaido? For now, it's anyone's guess. Ana says to understand how Venezuela got to this point, you have to understand just how bad things are in her home country. Everyone was telling me yesterday uh, at the opposition rally, we have nothing to lose. I mean, we don't care anymore. You know, my family is out there. Um, I have no food. I have nothing. Ordinary life has just broken down. Crime has spiked. Food and medicine have become incredibly scarce, and three million Venezuelans have fled their country as refugees. The chaos has touched everyone, even reporters like her. My best friend died because that was in 2016 because he had no access to medicine. I mean, we had everything around him, the money, the resources, but there was no medicine here. And to bring the medicine he needed was basically impossible, and he died at 34 years old. And that is, the, that is what happens to everyone in this country. So you have a huge mass of population that just don't care anymore. They don't have anything to lose. On today's show, we're going to talk to Anna about what happens when an entire country has nothing to lose. And we'll explain how Venezuela wound up with two competing presidents, forcing world leaders to figure out which side they're on and what happens next. Stay with us. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger for the ones who get it done. The story of this week's crisis in Venezuela, it's tricky because it actually starts a while back, before Nicolas Maduro took power, before his mentor, Hugo Chavez, was elected on a platform of nationalism. Can you tell me what Caracas was like before it was, I mean, you've called it Caracastan. <laughs> I mean, before it was like that, what was Caracas like? Since I was born, I remember Caracas as a violent city. It has never been a peaceful city, but definitely not what we see today. I mean, the problems were basically political problems. You could still see people eating every day, eating three or four times a day. You could easily go out to the streets and walk. You could go uh, eat something with the minimum wage you were earning from any job or whatever. And uh, you could be, you know, with a friend until, I don't know, 10, 11. And it wouldn't be a huge risk. Right now, it's completely different. Everyone mm-hmm. stays at home at 7 p.m. People are afraid. People don't have anything to eat. Uh, we're seeing a family starving. Minimum wage is about $6 a month. And what's amazing to me listening to you talk is you're describing a situation that doesn't sound that great. What did keep it held together for so long? When you know hell, purgatory doesn't seem so bad. People are used to this. Venezuelans see this, see corruption, see elites just playing with, with politics as something normal, something even funny something to make a joke about. But right now, that changed dramatically. Right now, people are starting to ask leaders for answers. They don't want any more corruption. People in Venezuela used to say this. Well, it's okay if they, if they want to steal something, but you know they have to leave something for the people. Imagine that. I mean, that was completely normal. Oh, okay, you're the president. Of course, you're going to steal something, but come on, you have to leave something for the people, you know? And even with Chavez was like, well, the problem is that, okay, he's stealing, but he's leaving nothing for us. But right now that changed. Was it that things began to change when Maduro took power and it became clear that there was nothing left behind for everyday Venezuelans? It started with Chavez. It started after the coup uh, against Chavez in 2002, when Chavez really started in jailing political leaders, opposition leaders. And, you know, from that moment, everyone started saying, oh, okay, maybe we've made a mistake. Maybe we underestimated this, this poor military guy that we thought uh, we could uh, control. Maybe we underestimate the people that support him. Mm. And little by little, then with, with Maduro, everything came down. Corruption became the everyday. I mean, Maduro was the low point in the Venezuelan conscience that they needed a change, that we needed a change. Definitely. It's so interesting hearing you describe this. It's like you're saying, listen, people knew things were bad under Chavez, but we could kind of laugh at it. And then it began to sort of twist and turn and Maduro took control and folks said, no, hold it. This isn't funny anymore. We can't eat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly like you just said. It's, it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, politics seems so uh, distant. It's something so, you know, the elite that I'm not going to be a president. I'm not going to be a mayor. I'm not. 
I can't decide. That was the idea of the people. But right now it's, no, no, I can't decide. I have to because we can't afford this kind of situation. I mean, right now children are dying. Well, so there's been opposition to Nicolas Maduro for years. I wonder why you think it's taken this long for there to be a change of this magnitude. Because, you know, they said, well, things are bad. Yeah, but they were bad for one part of the population. You know, it wasn't bad for the people who, you know, got a job at a ministry. It was actually pretty good for people that used to have, you know, low incomes to be at a ministry and have, you know, access to a lot of things they didn't before. My impression from what you're saying is that there were certain classes of people who were still benefiting from the leadership. Was it the lower classes, the upper classes? Like, who was it who was sort of keeping the lid on things? With Hugo Chavez, it was the lower class and the political class and the military. They were seeing benefits. They were seeing more money. And, you know, corruption started growing and they became more powerful. And with Maduro, that kept going. It became so corrupt. This new class of people, people call them entufados, means like plugged in, like plugged in people. This is where Juan Guaido comes in. He's that guy I mentioned at the top of the show, the one taking the oath of office in the streets and encouraging protesters to say it along with him. Guaido is young. His youth is important because it means he's perceived as fresh. He doesn't have a long political record trailing him everywhere he goes. He's not like the OGs of the opposition. Beyond that, Guaido's backers are very well organized. They've been toiling for weeks, maybe longer, to pull together the international coalition we see now. Guaido's supporters are people who've been in the opposition for years. Some of them were jailed by Maduro. Some of them have family who now live abroad. Some of them live abroad themselves. That's the thing. I mean, most of the political leaders um, who were being persecuted last year left to the main capitals of the world. So you have people with power around the world saying, hey, this is going on. I need, you know, I need help. We need help. That, that is why we have this today. And earlier this week, Mike Pence released this video where he basically pushes the country to recognize Guaido as the leader. The United States supports the courageous decision by Juan Guaido, the president of your National Assembly, to assert that body's constitutional powers, declare Maduro a usurper, and call for the establishment of a transitional government. So then countries start coming out and they start saying, listen, we recognize Juan Guaido as the leader of this country. Maduro doesn't accept that. He tells the United States to get your diplomats out. The United States says the diplomats are staying. And what's interesting to me is that Maduro put his finger on something that's real, which he said, this looks like the United States putting someone else in power. And we've seen this before. And it doesn't work out. And I wonder how people who you were talking to saw that. Of course, Maduro is going to say, no, this is the United States against Venezuela, you know, uh, an external enemy. But for the rest and for the National Assembly and the opposition, they're, they're making this very clear. This is not about the United States. This is about every country in the world supporting the democracy. 
I mean, you've covered Nicolas Maduro for years. Is he the kind of leader who goes out the door quietly? No, definitely not. Um, that is not going to happen. Not Nicolas Maduro, not anyone in the in the government right now. Let's not forget that the United States has said that um, most of them are involved in drug trafficking, are involved in um, illegal uh, businesses and um, illegal activities. It, it is it is basically impossible for them just to say, okay, well, you know, you're right. This is going on, and the people have spoken. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. Ana Vanessa Herrero is a reporter for The New York Times. She spoke to us from Caracas. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. After Anna told me how Venezuela got to where it is today, I called up Slate's senior editor of Foreign Affairs, Josh Keating. My main question for Josh, how far is the U.S. prepared to go to defend Venezuela's new leader, the president we recognize? Josh told me if Nicolas Maduro doesn't back down, the U.S. has a couple of options. We could register Venezuela as a state sponsor of terrorism. That move would limit financial interactions and other aid. A more drastic step would be an oil embargo, since most of Venezuela's cash comes from oil they sell directly to us. And, you know, then the president hasn't taken military action off the table. Uh, He's reportedly discussed it with his team a few times. That would be, you know, obviously a a very extreme step that even a lot of people who hate Maduro and want him gone would not go so far as to support that. I'm wondering, you know, how long can we sort of wait it out? We've done this grand rollout of support for this new president, and now we're kind of holding our breath. Like, how how long can we just sort of sit here in this in-between state? You know, I, I'd say the longer it goes on, the more dangerous it gets, you know, especially if you have, as you'd say, rival powers backing different sides in this conflict with the U.S. and Brazil and sort of right-leaning Latin American countries on one side, you know, Russia, China, uh, Mexico, which is an interesting one, and Cuba, you know, on the other side. That kind of proxy battle, uh, especially when people are sort of calling on the military to rise up and overthrow Maduro, I mean, that that's a recipe for, you know, more conflict and, and probably violent conflict. Josh said if you really want to know where U.S. policy towards Venezuela is headed, you should keep an eye on one person, Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida. You know, since Trump took over, there's a sense that Trump has largely kind of outsourced Latin America to Rubio. Uh, A key point in the evolution of Trump on Venezuela was in February 2017, Rubio organized a meeting in the Oval Office between Trump and Lillian Tintori, who's the wife of the jailed Venezuelan opposition leader, Leopoldo Lopez. Afterwards, Trump called on Maduro to release political prisoners and has since then been dialing up the pressure. This was surprising to a lot of people. Trump's not somebody who talks about 
about democracy a lot. He's not somebody who took much of an interest in Venezuela at all. But his, his Latin America policy seems to be mostly to make Marco Rubio happy, which, which means dialing up pressure uh, as much as he possibly can on Venezuela and on Venezuela's ally Cuba. Why is Trump so interested in keeping Marco Rubio happy? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, the sort of slightly conspiratorial answer might be that uh, Marco Rubio sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is, uh, has some role in, in investigating him. Some people have suggested that. Another case is simply like it's it's an electoral advantage. I mean, Trump won Florida with you know the support of both the Cuban community there and the sort of growing number of Venezuelan exiles who live in Cuba, and that's an important constituency. And uh, a lot of those voters have sort of very uh, hawkish views on these topics. Keeping Rubio happy is maybe not as important as sort of potential voters who could play an important role in swinging elections going forward. I mean, the way the U.S. is acting here like openly encouraging a regime change. I don't feel like I've seen anything like it, but I don't know if you'd compare it to something else. Well, it it does often seem like the Trump administration almost has different foreign policies depending on which hemisphere you're talking about. What we typically think of when we look at, you know, Trump's actions in Europe or or Asia or the Middle East or Africa even is this kind of purely transactional foreign policy. Uh, you know, what can you do for me? He's, you know, famously had a lot of nice things to say about dictators and strongmen all over the world, not particularly interested in promoting human rights. And then if you look at their actions, you know, in Venezuela, it's totally different. It's it's a complete 180 and on, on Cuba as well. And, and I think that really... Um, reflects, you know, more than anyone else, reflects Rubio's influence on the Trump administration's foreign policy in this area. I feel like we've just spent so much time in the last year or two talking about possible conflict in Iran or in North Korea. And then Venezuela, like, kind of came out of nowhere for me. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, are you thinking about, like, the odds of us going in there and using military force? I would say it's still unlikely. I mean, I, I wouldn't rule anything out. Previously, you know, you had figures in there like H.R. McMaster and Rex Tillerson and James Mattis who were, you know, dead set against doing anything like this. You know, with John Bolton, I don't know. It's it's not it's not quite as out of the question as maybe that guy it loves was. a military operation. Yeah, I I would say that you know. To Trump's credit, they have lined up a pretty impressive coalition of regional governments, even, you know, a government like Canada, which you might nor normally think of as uh, being in favor of something like this. They do actually have a pretty formidable coalition. I think if you start talking about military action, that's going to break down real fast. And even governments like Colombia, for instance, which are, you know, really anti-Maduro are sort of horrified by the humanitarian situation, are on the front lines of this massive refugee crisis that Maduro's government have taken and would love to see him gone. They're not going to countenance any kind of talk of uh, military intervention just because of the, the history of U.S interference in the region. That's a big no-no. Josh, thank you so much for chatting. Thanks, Mary. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. We have had a ton of help for the past couple of weeks from Slate ace Danielle Hewitt. We are going to miss her so much when she goes back to D.C. this weekend. Bye, call us. 
You can find our show in Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. It helps people find us, and we love to be found. Have a great weekend. Turn off Twitter if you can. If you can't, you can always follow me. I'm at Mary's Desk. Talk to you Monday. <laughs>